Hey, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. It's good to see you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to get to teach today, and we're going to be in Acts 22 as we've been moving through the book of Acts. Strange passage, different sermon, but I am excited about it. Acts 22. I don't know, for those of you who are Christians, you might remember the first class that you went through as a Christian or the first book you read as a Christian. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, very happy to have you here. You're not in the wrong place. You're welcome. You're safe. No one's going to eat you. We're not going to ask you to raise your hand or fill anything out today. Just relax and, and, <laughs> and, and be at peace. But if you are a Christian, you probably remember maybe those first few days, that first season. I remember the very first class I ever went to. It was a class called Evangelism 101. Um, and I didn't even know what really evangelism was. I figured it had to do something with about, about telling people about Jesus, which is really what it was. And it was a pretty sturdy class, a lot of book work, a lot of reading, and it also had homework, which meant me going to the mall and creeping on suspecting dads on a bench, right? Waiting for their wife or their kids. And I say suspecting because they were not unsuspecting. They could smell my nervousness from 20 paces away. They could see the awkwardness coming, and I could see them preparing a defense for the awkwardness. I would start off with very normal questions like, do you know where you'll end up when you die, right? <laughs> Followed by, how do you know? These are questions that strangers love to have asked of them, right? So they weren't really relational conversations as much as they were interrogations. There, I was just trying to hope and land in this place of prayer where I could check a box and maybe say that the Lord did something in that moment. Fun times back then. Very nervous, very scared. Eventually I improved and grew in how relational I could be even on the spot or how fluent I was with the gospel. I grew as what we would call an evangelist. Uh, bringing it to the college campus as a campus minister with varying degrees of success. Um, I even grew in my ability to overcome anyone's defense. I would have this mental flowchart of if-then scenarios. If they say this, then I know to say these three things. And of course, if I say that, they'll have these two or three things that they would naturally say after that. And then if they do, I have these things that I would say. Hopefully, I could defeat them. In this thing called a conversation to where they just say, hey, you're right and I'm wrong. What must I do to be saved, right? That's how I was prepared to roam the fruited plains of these, these campuses. I even tried a lot of different strategies to open up conversations because just getting one started was really hard. I tried open air evangelism, open air preaching. Anyone ever see that? Anyone ever see that go well? No? I would do it. I would literally stand on a box and preach the gospel at a college campus, and that is as frightening as it sounds like it is. Um, I would do things like hand out surveys. I really enjoyed that. That's a great way to open up conversations. I knocked on doors in the dorms. I did the old bait and switch tactic, which is we're going to give you free whatever it is, fill in the blank, but not really. I'm going to preach the gospel to you. So here's free pizza and something else. Here's a free scooter. We're give, I remember one year we just gave away a bunch of scooters, but then I also preached the gospel, right? For a volleyball tournament, whatever it was, but we're also going to preach the gospel. Tournaments, flyers, you name it, it's been tried. You name it, anything to just start a conversation. And this is what I learned over many years of being on the college campus. Turns out people don't really enjoy being smashed in the face with a gospel they didn't ask for, right? 
I mean, with no relational capital being built, I was just creating awkward moments where I was hoping for the best to happen. But here's the thing. I'm not even willing to say all of that's wrong. I believe the gospel is enough and effective and sufficient for salvation. I believe it. I I am a firm believer. Paul says in the book of Romans, in Romans 1, stay where you're at. He says that the gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. says nine chapters later that faith comes by hearing the word of God preached. And I, I believe this. I honestly believe this, that the Holy Spirit prepares hearts to receive a word. And then the same Holy Spirit prepares us to speak words. And even if we get the words jumbled up or maybe we, we use a passage that's maybe not perfectly said or we say the wrong passage with the wrong scripture, whatever it is, amazingly, the Holy Spirit will take our imperfect words and permeate a landscape of, of regret in a person, sadness in a person. It's amazing to me. I mean, I've had so many moments where I did this quick drive-by evangelism where I just cold call somebody, walk right up on them and give them a piece of the gospel and see them radically changed. That has happened. It does happen. Don't throw that out. There's plenty of Ethiopian eunuchs out there in the world. And we talked about this several chapters ago where Philip just happens upon an Ethiopian eunuch that is speaking out loud and he's just kind of discovering this, this, this Jesus. He's discovering the Bible. He's maybe curious. I bet from the outside looking in, his friends probably didn't know that the Lord was doing something in his heart, but the Lord was doing something in his heart. And he was kind of turning and twisting. And then Philip was ready, and the same Holy Spirit is working with Philip. And that was one of those moments. How many people are walking around Knoxville right now, even today, that have hearts prepared to hear the good news of God's story? A bunch. A bunch. A lot of people. In fact, if you want to live on the edge a little bit, next time you start walking into rooms with multiple people, just ask the Lord this. Is there anyone in this room that needs to hear a piece of the gospel? Anyone at all? If you want to to live on the edge, just quiz the Lord. Lord, is there anyone in here that needs to hear a little bit about who you are, about what you have done for mankind? And this is what will happen. I promise you, I've done this a million times. After you've prayed a prayer like that, you will start to see in a landscape of people, one person or two people stand out, right? And this is what will go on in your mind. Lord, is that the person you want me to talk to? I don't know. Maybe it's just their shirt. Maybe I just like their shirt. I mean, maybe they just stand out. Maybe it's not you. I don't know. Is it you? Is it not? Hey, listen, there's only one way to find out, friend. Only one way to find out. Walk up and tell them about Jesus. Don't be a weirdo about it. Introduce yourself, have a normal person conversation, adult a little bit, and then somehow start a conversation that ends with Christ. That is living on the edge. I promise you that. But looking back over the years of trying the best I can to be an evangelist, which I am not gifted in, by the way, I will still say the most effective gospel declarations are embedded in a human testimony. Our story. A human testimony. Evangelism is best when your story is submerged in the story of God. Not just how Jesus redeems creation, but how he redeems you. Flesh and blood and bone. A real person. I I think we have great patience to listen to somebody else's story. More so than an uninvited sales pitch. That's what I've learned over the years. I've also learned that humanity resonates with the before-after story. We've talked about this up from the stage a couple times, 
how marketing is built on it. The before-after pivot. This is what things look like before. Here's a change agent, and this is what after looks like. We love that stuff. I saw an ad the other day. It's not a new ad. It's been out for a long time. I saw it years ago. I don't even know what it's called, the product. To be totally honest with you, and I'm sure there's several out there that are competing with each other because, of course. But it's a can that sprays hair. Okay, it's canned hair. I don't know how it works. It's just full of mystery and witchcraft for sure. But you spray it on a bald patch or something that's receding and it just looks like hair. They call it filament. I don't even know what that means. It doesn't even matter. I'm watching this. The before, guy that looks like me or a guy that's balding, a guy after, he's got a full head of hair. And I'm like, how does that happen? That's the best before-after thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, I know it sounds hokey, but I'm thinking, where was that 15 years ago for me? Because if you can't tell, I'm not going back, right? I mean, I'm bald, but if I was to try to grow it back, all of you, because you love me, would come up and say, bro, just go bald. (laughs) Just stop the fight and go bald. That's what you would tell me. But straight up, 15 years ago, I'd have bought a few cans of that, and I wouldn't have cared if you judged me or not, because it looked like it worked. We connect with the before picture. We find hope in an after picture. We think to ourselves, if that works for them, maybe it will work for me. You see, before Jesus, there was a couple things that stood out to me that made me interested in Jesus and more open to the gospel. I think one of the things was just that I didn't know that you could be a masculine man and love Christ. I thought masculinity belonged over here and being a Christian kind of was over here, but I didn't know that you could be a masculine man of God. I thought you had to kind of just cash in your testosterone at the door of the church and just be whatever. And I didn't like that. But when I started to see masculine men that love their families, love their kids, love their city, love their, their church, I thought, man, I, I, I need to know more. But what really pushed it over the edge was when I listened to their stories. The stories, their before, after story, their testimony. Luke, I used to be like this. Then Jesus found me, and then I changed to look very different. It's just them saying, I was dead and now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I can see. You see, the book of Acts, it's helpful for a lot of things, but it it is a master class of sorts on evangelism because it shows us what it looks like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, to extend his gospel where we we live a gospel demonstrative life, where we are living in the shape of Christ, but then we also extend a spoken gospel, right? We don't just demonstrate, we declare. And it shows us exactly how this works. And we call them evangelists. We call this evangelism. And and believe it or not, evangelism is not even a Christian word. The word evangelist or evangelism predates the New Testament. It's just a word that you really only hear in the Christian context now. But in ancient Greece, an evangelist would be somebody that would announce or herald or publish glad tidings. Things like a harvest has been successful, or a a king has been born, or a marriage, or a, uh, a victory in a battle. It would be some great news that's announced to anyone who would listen. But we've taken that word and we have strip mined it to mean the guy who screams from the corner of Gay Street and Clinch Street, right? You've seen that guy. And he stands up and he's just screaming. You don't know what's going on. You see him from a couple blocks away and you're like, is everyone okay? Everyone okay? Do we need to get the police? What's going on? Who's yelling? Why are they yelling? And then you start hearing a Christian word here and a Christian word there. 
a, a, a scripture reference dropped in, and then you're pretty sure they're just barking Christian things into the air. I think I'm going to cross the street now and then keep going down, right? And we look at that and we think that's what an evangelist is. Not it. Not it. Not doing that. But friends, listen, that's not what an evangelist is. But because of this, we stop carrying the gospel outward. What the American church has done more often is we've made this, the gathering, the de facto evangelistic voice into the world. There's nothing wrong with preaching the gospel from this stage. I'm going to do it today, and I do it every week. But I think a lot of times we don't feel competent to tell people the story of Jesus. So we throw them in the car and bring them here. And listen, you might be here because of that. You might be like, dude, that's me. I'm only here <laughs> because I came with my friend. Listen, that's fine. Again, we're glad you're here. But listen, this does not have to be the only place where the gospel is preached. This is a Christian gathering. This is not church. This is a gathering of church. Listen, if you're a Christian, you need to know you have a story. Others need to hear it. And Christ is the hero of it. That's, that's the reason, one of the big reasons we named this church Legacy Church. Because we don't just hand a treasure from one person to the next or from one generation to the next. It's called Legacy Church because we're also handing a story, a heritage, from one generation to the next. But the, the reason our story is beautiful is because we're not the centerpiece of it. We're just a big character in it. If, if you were to have the, the credits roll at the end of your story, you don't have top billing. <laughs> You're not the protagonist. Christ is. You're, you are restaurant patron number 17. You're way down on the, on the list of credits. And that's the best story ever told. The best story, the best you could ever hope to do with your life is where Christ is the pinnacle. He is the pinnacle for all of your affections and all of your life orbits who God is in the world today. Our story is best when it is submerged in another story. Listen, Paul is going to give his testimony today, his own flesh and blood and bone story. And he does a good job with it, right? Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. What I love about this passage is that's exactly what Paul's about to do. He's speaking to a mob that just put their hands all over him. It's a mob being a mob. And yet he is very careful, he is very gentle, and he's very respectful. Now, why do you care, right? I mean, you came in here with various issues. Why do you care about your testimony? Why do you even care about telling it? There's a, there's a couple big reasons. First of all, probably most importantly, every time you tell your story, it glorifies God. It's a form of worship. It's a spiritual exercise for sure, but it is a way of worshiping God. It's the story of God's glory coming to bear on your life. His immeasurable glory, our undeserving life. And they come into connection together. And we get to tell the story of that. And listen, God loves hearing it. God loves to hear us tell our story. You know people that they tell the same story all the time, and yet you love it when they tell it, and you hope that they tell it again. That's how he is with your story. That's how God himself, the God of the cosmos, loves to listen to your testimony. In fact, just dwelling on it, just thinking about it, just journaling about it, rehearsing it, meditating on it, it reinforces the gospel in your life, and it pushes away the voice of the enemy. 
And that's an important thing. Because the enemy has an unfavorable testimony of you by saying you have not changed. Oh, there is no after. You're stuck in the before. Right? Jesus wasn't enough for you. You're the same as you've always been. You're worthless. You're a fraud, full of shame, full of regret. And eventually people are going to find out how much of a fraud you are. That's what the enemy says. So not only is it a great spiritual exercise and a form of worship for us to tell our story, it's warfare. It's warfare against the enemy himself who hates when we tell our story. In fact, Paul tells the Roman church in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Some of you have been a Christian for a long time, and you're probably already thinking through the question, well, what about, what about me if I don't have much of a story? I became a Christian when I was a young kid. I don't know that I have this thing called a testimony. I wasn't in a gang, didn't deal drugs. I wasn't in my 20s. I was like six, nine. I don't know what... I don't know what to do with my testimony. We're going to talk about that towards the very end of this. But I think the second big reason is that some of you don't have a testimony. You don't, unless you don't think you do. Nothing has changed you yet. Your story has no pivot point. Not for lack of trying, though, right? I mean, how many things have you tried on for size to make you a better version, a after? How many things have you thrown at the gaping hole of your life hoping that it changes you? Again, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Let's look at the passage. We're going to be in, we're going to go backwards and we're going to go into chapter 21 and finish that one out. We're just going to go up to verse 37. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be, 2137 or a device. If you don't have one, we'll splash it up on the screen for you. Um, But this is going to be the word of the Lord. Again, it's a different passage today. But it's going to be good for us. And this is how it goes. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarshish of Cilicia, And brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Let's pause for a moment. He's giving his testimony, and this is how he starts. And it's a great place to start with a testimony. He's building rapport. That's all he's doing right here. He's basically saying, we're not too different, you and me. I'm kind of like you. I at least get you. He obviously was not an Egyptian leader of the assassins. He wasn't even a troublemaker. He was one of the zealots. He, he, maybe a few years or many years before that, would have been one of those guys in the mob screaming. Listen, this is good for you and me. You need to know, people don't know your story. 
People don't know who you were. They see the current version of you, and they are assuming that you would never understand them, that you've never struggled through the things that they're struggling through. You don't even understand the struggles and the suffering that they're going through. What testimonies do is they disarm people a little bit by building some credibility and rapport. That's what we're seeing here. They obviously couldn't argue with Paul's history. All they'd have to do is just listen to the leaders of Tarshish and they would have been like, yeah, that's him. Gamaliel was his guy. He's everything that he said he was. Friends, listen, we're all from homes that weren't perfect. We're all plagued with the same big question marks. All of us in some way are villains and misfits and vandals. We're all needy, tired, broken, weary, without a chance. When your peers hear that not only do you get it, you are them, they listen more deeply. They listen more deeply. And one of the things I love about this is he asks permission to be heard. And then he speaks in their language and then he calls them brothers and fathers, endearingly. He's, he's speaking in a kind way to them. These are people that were throwing punches just before this, by the way, which is crazy to me. I mean, if somebody was punching you and putting their hands all over you, and then you had to turn around and start talking to them, how gentle would you be? I don't know that I'd be all that gentle. That's where he's at. Then he brought his resume to bear. Tarshish, that's an impressive place. Gamaliel, even more impressive. He was kind of a rock star mentor back then. And he was a strict law follower, zealous for God. He says, even as they were that day. He's basically saying, I understand you. I get it. I was one of you. We are not too different, you and me. Listen, your testimony reveals you once shared the same prison cell as the person you're talking to, and you once had the same jailer that they have at that point. You're sharing a moment with them. You get it, and you're letting them know how much you get it. Now, Paul, throughout the rest of this book of Acts, is going to give his testimony one or two more times to different people. And, and although the bone structure to his testimony is the same, it's flavored a little differently. Again, it's him being kind and being all things to all men. And that's, that's a great way for you to give your testimony. There are times where I share my story with one group, and I major on a couple things and minor on another. Another group, I'm flipping it. I'm majoring on this and minoring on another. Same bone structure, same before, change, and after. But then he goes on. Look at verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way, meaning the church, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Okay, this is the second part of his testimony and a good second part to ours. He's not just saying, I get you, we're not too different. He's saying, my life was a mess. My life was a mess. I, I was a villain. And this is helpful for you and me, right? What, what were you zealous for before Jesus? What were you zealous for? Who taught you? What did they teach you? What were your values? What were you chasing after? I mean, considering your before, that builds worship in the heart. It expands our heart. When I am reminded of where I was when God rescued me, all I can do is just stop and gasp and just say, man, I can't believe it. You should have moved right on by, but you didn't. You stopped. It, it fills me with a thankfulness because I'm not just some victim of broken creation. 
I'm a perpetrator. I, I am a perpetrator. I'm a great sinner. You know, John Newton, most of you know him as the guy that wrote the song Amazing Grace, right? Which is a pretty familiar song. But John Newton was the captain of a slave ship for a long time, moving slaves through the Middle Passage. And he gets radically born again. His heart is convicted. He changes. And the long of it is he becomes a mentor to William Wilberforce, right, who was kind of the pointy end of the stick when it came to the end of the slave trade in Europe. But he mentored Wilberforce. And really, you could always tell in his writings the conviction he felt over who he was, but then the amazement he held that God would even have anything to do with him. And towards the end of his life, his health just really hit rock bottom. He even started to lose his sight. And this is one of his quotes. Although my memory is fading, Newton says, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Friend, listen, reflecting on who you were before Jesus, it might be painful for some of us. Not because you were unimpressive, but because you were loathsome. I'm with you. But what you need to know is that dry and maddening landscape full of regrets, that is the soil for God's immense glory. When we carry someone into our past, we carry them into context. We carry them into a real picture of what the glory of God does when it finally touches someone like you. We're sharing something with them, something precious. Asterisk. Put a little bit of an asterisk on this, okay? Because there can be an issue. I've seen, and this is usually done from the stage, whenever I hear testimonies given publicly or from the stage, sometimes I'll hear people elevate their brokenness to be an impressive sinner, not really to resonate or to connect, but to just kind of shock and awe people. I feel like this is maybe unnecessary. I grew up in church camps that smacked of overreach where somebody would get up and they would just go into gory detail of how broken they were. I don't think that that's very helpful. I think it might be unnecessary for sure. Paul is not going into gory detail right here over how exactly he tortured husbands and wives. He's not going into gross detail on how he destroyed families just to be impressive to the mobs there. He's being appropriate with how he shares his life. He's being honest inappropriate. Okay, let's move on. I could talk on that a little longer, but let's move on. Let's go with verse 6. He continues his testimony. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand to, by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all Jews who live there, came to me, standing by, my, by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. 
And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay, we're now at the point of his testimony where he has moved past, we're not too different, and have moved past, I was quite the mess, to then Jesus found me. Then God changed me. By the way, what did your salvation look like? You ever think about that? Meditate on it? Maybe you remember exactly when it happened. You could just point it out on a calendar. Maybe for some of you it wasn't even a moment. You just left one season of life where you knew you were very far from God, and then just kind of one season you knew that you loved Jesus and he loved you. But you couldn't really, it's just a a blurb on the calendar that you would point to. You're not really able to discern exactly when it is. But what, what happened to you? What stood out? How did the Lord communicate with you? I took some time to think about mine. I don't even remember the date. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't point it out. I do remember the room. I remember the story that the pastor told, but I don't remember any of the passages that he preached from. I just don't. I remember the prayer at the end. I remember how I felt. There was no flashing light. There was no angelic choir. I had a bunch of questions. (laughs) I was a little confused. I didn't know what forward looked like. But I had a sense of courage that I knew was not natural to me. Naturally, I'm a coward. But supernaturally, I had this courage to just drop everything and follow my king out of nowhere. It's something that only the Holy Spirit can do. I knew that. God didn't rescue me from drugs or crime. I wasn't in a gang. I was just a basic bro. I behaved. I was religious. Came from a good family. And yet, I caught a glimpse in a moment of what the rest of my life looked like. And it was me getting everything that I ever wanted. All of my goals being met. All of my dreams coming true. And I was scared and disgusted at the same time. I do remember that. I do remember that because it's part of my testimony. Listen, again, some of you, you were born again at a young age. You don't remember what you were like before Jesus, and I get it. It's not like we remember much of our childhood, right? It's like we wake up, and then one day we're seven. <laughs> and, and before that, it's just kind of hard to write down exactly what was going on in our life. What, what you do need to know is that all sins condemn. All of your sins condemn you. What occurred when you were redeemed, even at a young age, is no less miraculous than when it happened to Newton or Paul, both of them villains, both of them aged men. And and when we look at those salvations, we think, man, God really must have done some heavy lifting. Hey, no much, not not anymore for you. It was the same heavy lifting for you. It's, It's a miracle for them. It's a miracle for you. It's supernatural for them. It's supernatural for you. That's true. If you needed less grace because you were 11 years old when you were saved, then you misunderstand sin. You misunderstand the depth of what it does to the human soul and how it separates us from God. You miss that. But if it took the same cross and the same empty tomb and the same Holy Spirit to change your heart and give you the affections for Jesus, well, that's something very different. That is a part of your story. That is a part of your testimony. Besides, how many people do you know walking around who could just consider themselves not villainous, but just nice, behaved, morally upright people? Friends, that's everybody. That's East Tennessee. I might argue that your testimony is much more powerful than you think. You have a story. 
Others need to hear it. Jesus is the middle of it. He's the centerpiece. Let's look at how this finishes. Let's look at verse 17. It says this. And when I, this is him giving the last part of his testimony. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. All right, we're at the part of his testimony where he's saying, basically, my new life is not like the old one. <laughs> Some changes happened. It just couldn't go back to what I had lived. Jesus is not something that Paul added to his life. Just a simple add-on. There's no confusion of that right now. When you let go of this world and you let go of the world's values and you gain more of God, it builds a life that cannot be hidden. It doesn't build a confusing life. I remember when I became radically saved, radically saved, people thought I was in a cult. True story. True story. I remember walking into my room and my parents had left a little book by my bed. They just happened to forget it there and it was a book on how to know if you're in a cult. Here's the thing. I grew up in the church, right? I grew up in the church. I wasn't a Christian. I watched my parents. They were Christians. I wasn't. My friends thought I was in a cult. My advisor at college thought I was wrapped up into something. My parents thought I was in a cult. I wasn't in a cult. I just became a Christian. No confusion now. Everything was different. They, they told me later on that they thought to themselves, whatever that thing Luke did, he's not the same guy. How do we know? He gave up quite a bit and he never went back to normal again. His life was edited forever. Hear me now. The work that Jesus does in our lives is miraculous. It's supernatural. It's irreversible. And it is so powerful that the story of how it happened in you, it should be told. And when we tell it, it glorifies God. It worships God. It does warfare against the enemy. Tell the story of God with your story of flesh and bone embedded inside of it. That's the petition. That's what I see Paul doing. And I'm telling you, a church of people that can do that, <laughs> it's a very different church. It's a church that leans into this city. Listen, there's a lot of room for us to repent in a passage like this. When I read it, obviously the place of repentance is the place of silence. I find myself less inclined in some seasons to walk into a room and to ask the Lord, all right, Lord, who is it? Who is it in this room that you want me to at least just get their first name? Who is it that I can just start a relationship with? Or, all right, Lord, who in it in here just needs to hear the gospel? I'm, I trust that you'll lead me on how to do that. I trust that you'll give me the words for it. I trust that you'll open and close doors and all of those words that we used. But I'm here for you. I'm yours. You tell me what to do. I find myself oftentimes getting less inclined to pray that prayer. I find myself more silent. And maybe you're like that. And I'm here to tell you that's a place of repentance for us. It's an unbelief that the story of God is really all that good or all that powerful. Now here's the, the truth is your silence doesn't condemn you, by the way. If you are a silent evangelist, which is an oxymoron, 
But if you're a silent evangelist, do you know that God loves you all the same? That in your ability to tell the gospel fluently, powerfully, doesn't make him love you anymore? It's important that you know that. If your silence doesn't condemn you, but it does reduce you and put you in a cage, sure, Jesus loves you, but you are losing so much joy. You are losing so much worship in this world. There's so much room for us to repent here. And friend, listen, if you're here and you are far from Christ, you are far from Jesus, maybe you're looking, maybe you're just searching, hunting, just pressure testing this thing called Christianity to see if it really can hold the weight or you're watching online and that's where you're at right now, can we just at least agree on a couple things that you've been searching for what after looks like? You've been living a before, you've been looking for a change agent, haven't found one. You've tried several things, right? We can agree with that, but they've been liars. They haven't changed your life. Maybe for a minute or two or three, but not forever. You feel stuck. I'm here to tell you, the work Jesus does in us, again, is miraculous, supernatural, irreversible. And there's room. And he loves you. And he's done a great work for you. And he is calling you to a life of after. A life of after where you never have to go back to before. No, your life won't be perfect. It'll be full of mistakes. You'll injure others and you'll be injured by others. Because it's just the landscape we walk until Jesus comes back and gets us. But the questions that really need to be answered will be answered. The problems that are really pinning you to the mat will be gone. Because death itself will have lost its sting. And this Life that we live, as difficult as it might be, is a vapor. And we get to spend eternity, eternity, with a king that adores us as we rejoice in his glory every second for eternity. Never having a stagnant existence with God, but an existence that gets more beautiful as we discover more and appreciate him more and have more thanks and more delight every single second for eternity. That's for all of us.